So anybody know anybody who's uh, a little bit full of themselves, talks a very good game, has a head as big as a hot air balloon? Anybody? No? Anybody been that person? Anybody join me in doing that? Yep. Okay. <laughs> See, one of the wonderful things, we, we can get a little bit full of ourselves and a bit overawed by our own importance. But one of the wonderful things about being a dad of four girls is that that quickly gets brought down very uh, very suddenly. Um, brushing hair, it's a great job. No, you're killing me, Dad. Um, yeah, so you get that kind of stuff. Um, as, a, as a teacher, there's another opportunity for you to get destroyed <laughs> or brought down, back down to, down to earth. Um, and if you really want to try to find out <coughs> how, how awesome you actually are, teach with people who you taught. Um, I'm doing that this year and it's quite fun to hear some of the stories that they have of me. Um, so yeah, I have, I have ample opportunity to uh, be very full of self-import. You know, as a teacher, you're sage on the stage, you're all your, all your people. Um, in my position as director of seniors, I got to uh, do a number of awards nights as well and you get dressed up in this wonderful gown and you're wearing your suit and they have this processional with awe-inspiring music as you walk in. And so you're walking up the front and it's easy to get big. And so one of the roles that I had to do was actually calling students up and uh, congratulating them on their award and then sending them off the stage. And so, you know, that's a pretty easy job to do. They'd come up, year 10s, well done, yeah. Please join with me in congratulating the year 10s on their wonderful achievements. Well done, yeah, excellent. Year 11, names. Please join with me in congratulating all the year 11s on their wonderful achievements. Excellent. Year 12, come up. They go off. Please join with me in congratulating myself in front of all the parents and students. It did happen. And uh, I've never been allowed to forget that. And I'm just chucking that out there to you as well so that you can pop my bubble whenever it gets too big. But the, um, the whole hint of where this is from is this passage to me. Um, I really struggled with, the, with where to go with it. There's so much in this passage that we're going to look at today in Mark seven twenty-four to 37. And it, it, but I struggled with a whole heap of it until um, I realized that a lot of it's to do with perceptions. It's all about perceptions. And there's three main ones that we have. Um, our perception of Jesus. You'd think that's pretty important, yes? Yep, awesome. We get it wrong a bit, um, or I get it wrong. Can't really speak for you guys, but I get it wrong a bit. Our perception of ourselves, kind of what I just talked about, um, that gets brought down to earth a bit. And then Jesus' perception of us. Um, and so we're going to talk about each one of those. Now, the passage I'm talking on today, Mark, 20, uh, Mark 7, verses 24 to 37, is made up of two main parts. There's a part where he's talking to a Gentile lady, a um, Syrophoenician lady with a demon-possessed child, and then another one where he's healing a deaf and mute man. And uh, I'm going to deal with them separately. They are interlinked and we'll, we'll deal with that. But I'm going to deal with them separately and starting with Mark seven twenty four to 30. Good, I'm on the ball today. Yes, second service has to be better than the first. Uh, that's nothing. Okay, anyway. Um, I was, it wasn't that bad. Um, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. 
But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So let's give it some context um, because there's a bit in there. First off, Jesus is tired. He went to Tyre. I think that's what's good. Yeah, he went to Tyre um, to escape the crowds, essentially. If you look back the last couple of weeks and actually through the gospel, he's been healing people. He's been um, feeding thousands. He's constantly mobbed by people. And that can be wearing even for Jesus. Throughout his time, he was often wanting some time alone, just that time to reconnect with his father and to just restore his bank, as it were, so that he could continue to pour out to others. Um, And so in this case, he went, and and it didn't often work, did it? He'd want to go away to find some time and people would find him. Um, In this case, he thought, well, why not? Let's go to a Gentile area because you won't get many Jews there, um, and spend some time. So he wanted away from the Jews, and, and, and it didn't last that long, though, did it? Because here comes this Syrophoenician lady, who's a Gentile, um, and it's important to remember that she's not in any part or any way overlapping the Jew, with the Jews in her faith or anything. She's a Gentile, 100% Gentile. Um, in fact, Mark goes out of his way to point out twice that she's a gentile um he says the gentile a syrophoenician lady uh now i'm going to read a little bit from a book called king's cross it's by a guy called tim keller most of this sermon is actually based on his work um it's a fantastic book definitely have a read of it if you're wanting to get even deeper into mark um but he makes um a couple of points here Though she's a Syrophoenician, um, because of Tyre's proximity to Judea, she would not have known the Jew- she would have known the Jewish customs. She knows that she has none of the religious, moral, cultural credentials necessary to approach a Jewish rabbi. She is a Phoenician, a Gentile, a pagan, a woman, and a daughter has an unclean spirit. She knows that in every way, according to the standards of the day, she is unclean and therefore disqualified to approach any devout Jew, let alone a rabbi. But she doesn't care. She enters the house without an invitation, falls down and begins begging Jesus to exercise a demon from her daughter. So she had some idea of the, um, of the Jewish customs and beliefs and came anyway. Which leads us to have this version of an odd Jesus, what I like to call an odd Jesus. Because this is a bit that I grappled with the most in these sections this is a bit that confronted me like running full pelt into a brick wall in these sections see we have jesus here this woman she has a demon possessed child she comes to jesus and she begs him to heal her daughter now that beg that word beg is actually an ongoing word so she's not just didn't just come and say please heal my daughter and walks off no it's ongoing she's begging him continually continuing to ask him to heal her 
daughter and what does he say he says to her let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs anybody feeling a little bit uncomfortable there at all she answered him yes lord yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs he is referring to her and by extension gentiles us as dogs yeah feels a bit insulting anybody with me on that a little bit confronting no anybody going hey hang on this isn't jesus anybody no it's okay there are a few awesome for me it was it was really confronting for me it was incredibly confronting because it really talks to our perception of jesus see in this modern day we have a perception of jesus kind of like that a hippie <laughs> unicorn riding jesus riding down a colorful rainbow with throwing armfuls of love out you know he's all warm hugs and kisses and cocoa yeah the loving jesus sorry i had to put a unicorn in my kids love this picture by the way i showed them this the other day they've they've not stopped i'm gonna have to put on a t-shirt or something i'm not 100 percent sure but we have this image particularly in western society of a jesus who is all about love he's just love jesus is love anybody heard that yep jesus is love hear it all the time and it's true jesus does love us but that's not all there is to jesus jesus like any other person has more than one personality more than one aspect but we always focus on this jesus is love so when we come to get this uh insult that's happening here automatically it puts our back up and goes hang on you can't call her that she just came to you heal daughter like that's what you do jesus you're all about love and yet you said no i'm feeding the children before the dogs little bit a little bit confronting just a little bit um so what i'm going to there, there's an interesting passage in uh in matthew 15 21 it's it, it's mirrored in matthew but there's a little bit more of the interplay between the disciples and jesus and the um, Syrophoenician lady and Jesus in Matthew 15. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So there's a lot more of the interplay there. We can see the ongoing begging that the lady's having, the Syrophoenician lady is having with Jesus, but we can also see the Jewish customs coming into play with the disciples. What we've seen over the uh, progression of Mark and what you would have seen if you've heard many of Pete's sermons um, is to do with the unclean and the kind of things that Jews had to do if they came in contact with one who was unclean. And there's a lot there in this Syrophoenician lady, which is pretty confronting for a Jew. Um, so in Ephesians 2, 11 to 12, 
It shows that Gentiles aren't exactly revered by the Jews. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In the world. So we have that playing there as well. But in amongst all this, um, we have greater things happening or uh, a little bit more. There's a book uh, called A Ransom for Many, the Gospel of Mark Simply Explained, and I automatically went, yep, that's for me. Um, The Gospel of Mark um, Simply Explained by Steve Wilmhurst, and in this he says, But there is a problem, not a problem about dealing with demons, but a problem with this woman who has burst into the house and now lies at Jesus' feet pleading for help. She is a Gentile. Mark emphasizes this, explaining in detail that she's a Greek speaker, culturally alien to Israel. She's from Phoenicia, the coastal strip of what is now Lebanon. Administratively, it's part of Syria. But what counts is her. She has nothing to do with the Jews. To understand what this means, we must remember that the Jew, what the Jews thought of the Gentiles. One of the daily prayers used by Jewish men of the time went like this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman, who has not created me a Gentile, who has not created me a slave or an ignoramus. Yeah, but here is a Gentile woman, the lowest of the low for a devout Jewish man. So how will Jesus, a devout Jewish man, respond to her? Perhaps given the background, his response isn't quite so unexpected as it is to to you and I, or at least to me, but it still shocks us. It still shocks us. His meaning is plain enough. He's here to feed the children, not the dogs. The children safe inside their family home. um, The children safely inside the family home who think of themselves collectively as the children of God his adopted race. The dogs running around in the yard are the Gentiles, outsiders, unclean, with no claim whatsoever on God's care or protection. So is Jesus no different from other Jewish men men of his time, grateful that God has spared them from the appalling fate of being born a Gentile or a woman or, perish the thought, both? More than one explanation has been offered for this very blunt reply. Jesus must be speaking with a smile on his face or he's simply joking. Well, we can't say if he's smiling or not. Mark doesn't talk about that. And there's certainly no suggestion that he's joking. There are two reasons why he speaks as he does. One is that he is simply telling the truth. Jesus' mission at this point is focused on the Jews. 2,000 years of history, beginning with Abraham and running down through the centuries since, have not quite finished yet. Everything about Jesus is Jewish. His royal ancestry, through the line of David, his birth in Bethlehem, royal David's city, his religious upbringing, his visits to the temple, the language he speaks, all are Jewish and all reflect the fact that for the last 2,000 years, God has been dealing with the world through the nation of Israel and the Jewish race. If the rest of the world want to encounter the one true living God, they need to go to Jerusalem and become Jews. Up to this point, they are the children, and we Gentiles, we Gentiles, are the dogs. Mm, gets a bit uncomfortable when we say we are the dogs. Jesus' mission continues that story. His ministry of teaching, 
healing and driving out demons is for the Jews. The children must be fed. He cannot take their bread and fling it to the dogs. The Jews come first in the purposes of God. The good news is we know that by the way the story concludes, that in the end Jesus will not reject this woman. This verdict about the children and the dogs is not the final word. Jesus is testing her to see how she herself will respond to such a blunt judgment. And she does well. Let's consider this. She's a Gentile woman with a demon-possessed child. How much courage would that take to come to a Jewish rabbi at that point and ask him to heal her daughter? She knows enough to know that she's not welcome. Granted, she is a mother. And mothers, as you know, as a father, I'd do almost, I'd do anything to help my sick child. So that that helps a bit in coming to that. But she's still coming to a Jewish rabbi and asking for her child to be healed. And it comes down to a little bit of th- something I like to call cat and dog theology. Now I can't take all the credit for this. I did hear this in a sermon a few years ago. But how true is that? Dogs have owners, cats have staff. Okay, I'm probably going to offend a few people here if you're a cat lover. Um, I would apologise for that, but I'm not going to. Um, I have owned cats. I don't currently own cats and life is good. Um, But no, I actually do quite like cats. But I also have dogs. And I know that this is so very true. You know, you come home from work and a cat will be like, yeah, I'll give you permission to enter. And a dog will be all over you going, oh, you're home. Thank goodness you're home. Yeah, so, you know, we had a cat, Simon. It was actually Helen's cat. I married into that, into that relationship. Um, and, the, you know, we'd wake up in the morning with this cat. You know those cartoons where the cat's on your face? Yeah, it would happen. <laughs> it would try to come between Helen and I because, yeah... Anyway, and then it would walk around incessantly meowing at us to either be picked up or fed. And you had to get it right because otherwise it would continue to meow at you. She was an amazing cat. Um, But she left you in no uncertain terms that she was the boss. Yeah. Our dog, our Labrador, absolutely the opposite, completely devoted. Um, If you have a Labrador, you know that they're the epitome of the... uh, the, the one who just looks at you and just worships you, that they love you. It, it's good. It actually makes you feel really good about yourself. Um, but you see, cat theology goes something like this. God loves you. God died for you. God blessed you. God has eternity for you. God has a new nature for you. God has an eternal home for you. Look at how amazing you are. Look at how valuable you are. Look at how important you are. Now, theologically, nothing really wrong with that. God has blessed you. God has saved you. God has done all these amazing things for you. He's done all those amazing things for me. But where is the central aim there? Where is that central aim? Is it on God? No, it's firmly and squarely on me. God is not, no longer being emphasized. Dog theology, on the other hand... And I just imagine this, if, you've got, if you know dogs, just put a dog face in your mind. 
Look at how great God is. Look at all that God has done and will do. God does all of this so that I might tell everyone how glorious he is, how loving he is, how generous he is, how compassionate he is, how merciful he is, how kind he is, how long-suffering he is, how affectionate he is, how wonderful my master is. (laughs) Awesome! (laughs) Right? Yeah? God's back at the center where he should be, but you can just imagine the drool and the bouncing up and down. (laughs) Yeah, awesome! Right? Cat and dog theology. And now it's no mistake or no... um, Oh, man, my words are leaving me and I'm an English teacher. This is bad. I chose cat and dog theology for a reason because the Syrophoenician lady has dog theology in spades. Ooh, that just maximized. She knows who Jesus is and she knows who she is. She's not putting herself up there with God. She's not putting herself above God. She knows exactly that she's a Gentile and that coming to Jesus comes with a whole heap of inherent risk. But she does it anyway. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She accepts the fact that he is in charge. That It's not about her, it's about him. There's nothing that she can do to heal her daughter. It's all about him. She knows she's unclean, but she does it anyway. She has a wonderful dog theology. Yeah? Fantastic dog theology. Now, this leads on to our perception of ourselves. Because once you've actually got Jesus and where God is set right, then you need to actually start looking a little bit about where we are. It all works kind of hand in hand. Helps if I actually press the clicker, doesn't it? See, we need to know our place and let Jesus be the saviour. She gets it. She's not saying, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. Hardly at all. She's not saying that at all. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve. Give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. That's what I need. Your goodness. And so all too often we treat Jesus as a cosmic vending machine. And we take him from being master. And yes, he did come to serve, but he didn't come to be at our beck and call. He's the king. He's the Lord of lords. Made everything. Let's not put him down below us. And there are two ways that we fail to let Jesus be our saviour. See, she got this right. She got this so totally right. One of the ways is to be too proud and have a superiority complex. I'm too good to need him. Or I'm all good. I've done enough work. You know, look at me. I've, I go to church every Sunday. I pray. I don't need him. I'm all set. The other one, and, and we all have that to certain extents. Okay, maybe I'm speaking about myself. But I, I'm assuming that we all experience that from time to time. The temptation is there. But the second one is that we come too low we have too much of an inferiority complex we say i'm too awful that he couldn't begin to love me he can't help me because i'm just there's nothing here and that's that's very 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 dangerous and she doesn't do either of those she understands it she gets the gospel 
she understands that you're more wicked than you ever believed. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, so much more loved and accepted than we ever dared to dream. She's not too proud to accept the, what the gospel has to say about her unworthiness. Instead, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't challenge Jesus. She doesn't get it back up and say, how dare you call me a dog? I'm going to go to some tribunal. I'm sure there's a tribunal for rabbis who speak out of turn and call people dogs, and I'm going there and filing a complaint. No, she doesn't do that. She takes it on board. She doesn't arc up and, and get her back up which is exactly what I did the moment I read this. I'm like, whoa. No, she responds. She keeps going back to him. She keeps persisting in coming to him. She's not too proud. She knows where she is. But she's not so low that she doesn't go to him. And we've all done that. We've all been in that place. Um, John Newton uh, some of you may have seen the movie Amazing Grace. He's in that. Well, actually, some dude playing him is in that. But the character of John Newton is in there. He wrote... Anybody heard the song Amazing Grace, the hymn? Yeah. Okay, he wrote those words. John Newton, he was an Anglican, Anglican priest after a whole heap of other things in his life, but he became an Anglican um, Anglican priest and, and a hymn writer and uh, fought alongside or kept helping... William Wilberforce fight against slavery. But as a minister, as a parish priest, is that what they were called? Um, he had a parishioner who was somewhat down on themselves, a bit depressed. And he wrote this letter to them. You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, indeed, you can't be too aware of the evils inside of yourself, but you may be. Indeed, you are improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but too low an opinion of the person, the work, and the promise of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when I look at your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evils you complain of. See, it's very easy to um, drop ourselves or drop God to the point where he can no longer help us. And as Tim Keller says in the book uh, King's Cross, it's just as much a rejection of the love of God to refuse to seek him, to refuse to come after his mercy, to refuse to accept it, refuse to be content with it, as to say, I'm too good for it. And what we can learn from the Syrophoenician lady is that she didn't come above God. She didn't come way too low. She came where she was. She had a very good perception of who she was. A very solid understanding of who she was. And as such, that perception enabled her to continually to beg of Jesus to heal her daughter. And I just love the lines there towards the end where uh, in Matthew it says... Um, O woman of faith, your words have saved you. Your daughter has been healed. And indeed, she goes home and a demon-possessed daughter, who is also a Gentile, is healed lying on the bed. She had a right perception of Jesus and she had a right perception of herself. 
Which then brings us to the third point, which is Jesus' perception of us. Once you've got those two nailed down, actually this one kind of exists out of all the others, but once you've got those two nailed down, it's very, it becomes a lot more apparent to see how God and Jesus, how God views us. In Mark seven thirty-one to 37, it tells the story of um, a deaf and, blind, deaf and mute man um, who Jesus goes and heals. And, and this is an intensely more personal healing. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. See, I'm going to stuff this word up every time I come across it and a few others. I apologize now, particularly to all those Greek speakers of you out there, if there are any. Um, but it's just going to happen. I'm just going to keep going as though it didn't. And you can say whatever later. And they brought him to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephephatha, see, that is, be opened. I just can't say that one. Oh. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. You see, this is a very intensely personal healing that's happening here. Jesus didn't need all those gestures, the spitting on the tongue and the finger in the ear or whatever, and you know, looking up to heaven. He didn't need that. Just, just then, he healed the Syrophoenician's daughter, even though he was who knows how far away. She wasn't there. He healed her from afar. No arm raising, no abracadabra. See, Jesus isn't into cheap parlor tricks. He doesn't do cheap parlor tricks. He's not a street magician. He is son of God, fully God, fully man. He didn't need to do it for himself. So why did he do all that? He did it for the guy. He did it for the deaf and mute man. You see, this deaf and mute man had given Jewish custom. He had been outcast. He'd been reviled. He'd, he would have experienced a lot of things in his life up to this point. And Jesus is doing this as assurance, reassurance for him, saying, I'm here. I'm working with you. And what's also important to note is that he takes him away from the crowds. Now, that in itself is an achievement for Jesus, getting away from the crowds. But this guy has been surrounded by people who have mocked him, who have treated him poorly his entire life. And Jesus gets that. Jesus identifies with that. You see, it's not too much before that Jesus had been hammered, that Jesus had been called out by his own family nonetheless. But one of, the main, one of the reasons that Jesus came down from his heavenly realms and seated on the right side of God and all glory and walked the earth as a man, born into a manger, walking the dusty, smelly streets and getting taken to the cross is because he to identify with us. So taking the man aside, he avoids the spectacle that that would otherwise bring. And he gives us what we need. One of the greatest names that I see for him in the Bible is Wonderful Counselor. He can work with us where we are. Yeah? He's a wonderful counselor. Now that leads us to 
another bit. There's a deeper identification yet. There's this sigh, or in some translations, a moan. It comes with that sense of pain. Now, in that sighing or moan, before he heals him, there's two possible ways that we can read into that. We can read into that, um, and this I got from Matthew Henry's commentary, that he feels the pain at the temptations that this man will now face that he's been healed. His ears have been opened and his mouth is now able to work. How much sledging does this guy have to catch up on? Yeah, he's got a heap to catch up on. Um, he can, the out, inmost thoughts can now come out through his tongue. And granted, I reckon that would cause Jesus a bit of pain. He's healing a guy and that may transpire. But I lean more towards what Tim Keller's saying here, which is doesn't disregard that. In fact, I think it's built in. But there's actually a cost in his healing of us. There's a cost in this healing. See, Mark uses the term magalos for deaf and could <laughs> for deaf and could hardly talk. It's an incredibly rare word. It's not used very often. In fact, in the Bible, it's used in one other place only. And that's in Isaiah 35, verse 5. And the use of it here, you've got to think, has something to do with Mark wanting us to cross-reference back to Isaiah. There's all these intricacies throughout the Bible where they're all interlinked and interwoven. And in this one, you've got to, you've got to think that there's some way that Mark is wanting us to look back here. There's only one other way. And in Isaiah 35, verse 5, it says, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come with divine retribution to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And we have seen all that. We've seen the eyes of the blind being opened and the ears of the deaf, uns deaf unstopped. We just saw it. There's the lame being healed and jumping around for joy and you've got the mute tongue shouting for joy. This guy goes off and tells everyone, even after he's told not to. I wouldn't be able to stop myself. He's like, whoa, how awesome is this? I can talk. Listen to this. I'm not going to stop talking now. I'm just going to keep talking and talking. I'd probably employ him at the race courses maybe. I don't know. Anyway, but we've heard all this. But what I want to draw your attention to is the divine retribution. You see, Jesus didn't come to bring divine retribution to us. He came to bear it for us. <coughs> From chapter 8 onwards, Jesus starts turning his sight to Jerusalem. His journey takes a left turn and he goes back, knowing full well what is coming. He knows what's awaiting him there. From chapter 8 onwards, he starts being public about who he is. In chapter 8, he asks Peter who he is, and Peter identifies him as the Son of God. And his entire ministry changes then. This is the turning point at which that takes. So this groan or moan, I think it's fairly warranted. He knows what's coming. He knows that he's going to be arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be taken, tried. He's going to be called all sorts of things. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be whipped to within an inch of his life. Bone will be shown. Blood will be splattered. 
He's going to have to carry a cross up the hill. He knows that he's going to get nailed to it. From what I've read of the crucifixion, I find it amazing that he even made it to the road. The beating and the whipping that he took under the Romans had killed many people before. It was brutal. He suffered the most brutal punishment allotted to anyone ever. And yet that was not the worst of it. Because, see, he knew that when he got nailed to that cross, before, when he said, it is finished, he was going to get completely separated from his father, from the love of his father, and bear the full wrath of God. Now, I don't know about you, but the taste of, the, of, of God's love that I have, getting that cut off, that would kill me. But here we're talking about Jesus who has been in perfect communion with his father, with his actual father, looking down the barrel and of knowing that that's going to be cut off. And not only that, he knows the wrath that's going to be allotted and he knows it's coming for him. How divine retribution is that? That's, that's what I call divine retribution. It's huge and it's on him. And you see, the wonderful thing about this is is that God's perception of us isn't of us being really sinful and um, not worthy of coming to him. His perception of us isn't that we're his master. His perception of us is that we are his child and he loves us and we're worthy enough for him to come and die on that cross and suffer that separation. His perception of us is so much more than we could ever imagine. And when we get our perception of Jesus right, that he is king and that we come to him, not as a worm and not as a king ourselves, but as who we are, we can come knowing full well that he is loving us like a child. And that is amazing. So the son became a dog so that we dogs could be brought to the table. He became mute so that our tongues could be loosed to call him king. Don't be too isolated to think you're beyond healing. Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. Don't be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how loved you are. 